HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. A lot of this starts from the fact that I see, even just with my friends who are now totally sick of talking about this with me, um, when you walk down the street and you point to a plant and you're like, yo, that's amaranth, that's callaloo, that's this, that's that. Like it has all these names, it's eaten all these places. And people are like, oh, really? Like you see something in people's brains turn on. Like, oh, that's not just a random plant. Like that actually has a story, it has a purpose. That's Candace Thompson, the manager of a wild food forest in Manhattan. You'll hear more later about how she's reclaiming urban space to make room for edible plants. During the pandemic, outdoor and indoor spaces are being reconceptualized to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. In this episode, we'll explore the ways familiar spaces are shifting to become more hygienic, more profitable, and more accessible. We start with a story about the expansion of outdoor dining into New York City's sidewalks and streets. Then we travel to outer space to learn how astronauts are abandoning freeze-dried foods for home-cooked meals. We wander through a park that aims to forge a healthier relationship between people and plants. And we examine how one vertical farm has reimagined both agriculture and office space. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. First, Ryder Bell has a story about how outdoor dining could become a permanent part of everyday life on New York's streets. Space is a rare commodity in the dense urban jungle that is New York. Finding the best ways to share that space is vital to making a livable city. One of the most obvious spaces we share are streets. We use them for walking, biking, driving, and in recent months, eating. Streets are kind of the, the lifeblood and the, the vessels of the organism that is the city. Says Alex Levy, an urban designer and principal architect at the Slow Architecture Firm. 
let's be specific about New York. Everyone lives or works or goes and buys things on these various properties. And then the motion they make in between all of those places, when they're asleep, when they're going to school, the, the movement between them is coursing through the veins of the streets. The streets are the space we share. It's the, the civil and civic moment that we have where we all meet on a level playing field. It's our existence. It's really what identifies us as people from New York City. It's when we share that moment on the street. That's when we're all the same. The coronavirus pandemic created a sense of urgency to increase access to outdoor space. After a strict lockdown period, the city began to quell the spread of the virus. On June 22nd, a limited capacity outdoor dining program was initiated. Restaurant owners are no strangers to working in an industry with thin margins. For many, moving into the streets became necessary to stay afloat. The obvious idea was, let's create more outdoor dining. That's Andrew Ridgey, executive director of the NYC Hospitality Alliance. We work closely with the city council, with the de Blasio administration to stand up an outdoor dining program, which now has become so popular, there's a massive movement to make it permanent. It not only helps these businesses, it not only helps jobs, but in my opinion, it's really created a more livable New York City. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. And we want to continue to enhance and improve upon the outdoor dining program. And that's what we're doing. Andrew says about 40% of restaurants have opted into NYC's Open Restaurants Outdoor Dining Program in the beginnings of what could be a new city culture. The success of the program was enabled by streamlining restaurants' application process. How do we cut the red tape? How do we kick through the bureaucracy to make sure that restaurants can get outdoor dining set up as quickly and as efficiently as possible? So instead of having to have an architect do renderings and have this whole long approval process that costs a lot of money, we basically were able to open up this system or program for participation for restaurants throughout the five boroughs who were in areas perhaps pre-pandemic that couldn't even get a sidewalk cafe if they wanted. They were able to self-certify that they met all the requirements and then set up their outdoor dining installation and get going versus the very lengthy review and permit process. For Vivian Forte, owner of Pastici Restaurant in Morningside Heights, getting certified for outdoor dining was a breath of fresh air. The process of applying for outdoor dining permits could not be easier. I mean, as someone who's run a restaurant for many years, I am used to and braced for the building department and the permitting process to be excruciatingly slow. But it's actually, it's a two-minute process. You go online, there's a form, you fill it out, you're done. Despite the ease of certification, the evolving nature of the pandemic, along with the inevitable change of seasons, leaves restaurant owners like Vivian grappling with how much to invest into outdoor dining structures. So even if we did make it through October without heating, once we'd invested all the structure that we would have to build, as well as the heaters, we would have done so really only for one month, which is the month of November. Because by the time December rolls around, nobody's going to be eating outside. Even if they could withstand the cold, their food would be cold. And that wouldn't be a great dining experience. Amanda Schachter, the other half of Slow Architecture, isn't so sure that New Yorkers will be quite ready to give up their new way of life as the temperature drops. I do think it's going to be very interesting over the next months to see how the city evolves. Now I have a feeling that as it gets colder, things will change. People won't be so interested in just being indoors. And it's going to be very interesting to see first how these restaurants adapt. 
there will be a transformation that we're going to start to see as the months get colder. So it'll be interesting to see how people react and change their own personal behavior in response to what's available to them on the street. With the city making outdoor dining permanent on September 25th, the aim is for restaurants to be able to invest in long-standing structures and imagine new ways to exist within neighborhoods and communities. But there have been delays in the approval process, among other obstacles. For example, propane heaters on sidewalks were only approved on October 15th. For Vivian and Pistici, it's no different. We started building a barrier, which we were then told had to be a different kind of barrier, and whether or not we could expand into the street and how long that street seating would be allowed was also very much up in the air. This made it fairly difficult for us as business owners to know how much money to invest in an outdoor seating setup. But knowing now that outdoor dining will outlast the pandemic, restaurant owners were wise to invest in the structures they've built. At Pastici, the care that went into their structures has resulted in a street adorned with bright blue decks and vibrant red umbrellas, which could become an important part of the restaurant's future. We feel really fortunate that we did put the money in. We built things nicely, not kind of slapped together, but to actually look like an outdoor dining space. And we do think that that investment is going to come back to us in the spring and next summer when people don't necessarily have to eat outdoors, but are going to want to because it looks beautiful. So we're very grateful to the city for making that decision and extending it past just spring and summer next year, but actually indefinitely because it does beautify the city. Everybody is just happier eating outside when it's warm. We feel that if there's one good thing we got out of COVID, it's that. And to business owners who are struggling right now, Vivian has a message. Don't give up. It just seems that there are doors that continue to close on us, but there are other doors that then open. And I know it's a very personal decision. And if you've been losing money for a long time, the incentive is obviously there just to call it quits. But I have faith in the city and in the state governments to take care of us. We are too much a part of New York to just let, you know, fall to the wayside. And so I'm going to keep running my business as long as I possibly can. And I encourage others to do the same. Although much is still uncertain, Hope emerges in the ability to understand shared spaces as common ground. Alex from Slow Architecture envisions how streets can be the ideal venue for shared experiences. When the street is filled with all other kinds of people, rich, poor, commuters, bike delivery guys, uh, recent immigrants, taxi drivers, and they're all together on the street, these people can all sit on the street and socialize. And it, it becomes democratic just by virtue of everybody being there. It's an amazing thing to see. It's like a much, much more functional and safe and alive environment when everyone's out there than when it's empty. Thanks to Ryder Bell and Armin Spengen for reporting that story. Up next, we're blasting 400 kilometers into orbit to the International Space Station, where Alicia Chan explores the present and future of space cooking. Today, we're talking space cookies. No, not... I mean... Chocolate chip cookies in space. But before we get into the cookies, we have to first get into orbit. Hi! Hello! Hey! That's Ian Fichtenbaum and Jordana Zismer, co-founders of Zero-G Kitchen. Which is a platform for food development in space. Yes. Together with NanoRacks, a private company that develops outer space technology, Zero-G Kitchen developed the first ever space oven. 
the oven itself is, you know, it's cylindrical. And one of the reasons for that is to allow them to have an even heating cooking pattern. What, what was interesting in this case is there's no convection. Which is the even circulation of heated air that earth ovens have. But in space, the lack of gravity also means that air can't flow up or down. So movement like air circulation just doesn't happen. In space, inside an oven, as it was, there's no convection. So we had to design and develop a, an oven where the heating came entirely through conduction through the air. Much like a toaster oven, the space oven uses electrically heated elements to cook food. For the first time ever, astronauts can have food that has been freshly made. Back in December of 2019, astronauts at the space station used the oven for the first time. What was on the menu? Chocolate chip cookies. It's such a comforting thing. Like, who doesn't love a chocolate chip cookie? And it smells like home, it tastes like home, it has great memories of, of, of baking and smelling them being made. It's just a welcoming thing, and it's pretty universal. While cookies may not be placed in the necessary for survival category, they do highlight the universal comfort that food brings to the table. And this fact rings especially true when you're isolated 400 kilometers in space. Eating is the one time you can stimulate your senses in a way that... Uh, can make you know, what, what is a, a technological environment, an isolating environment, seem more like home. The idea of having more options to make freshly made foods, uh, that's an appealing thing, not just from you know, a culinary experience, but just a personal well-being experience. As space continues to be commercialized and space tourism becomes more common, you're just going to get people that aren't trained for years to subsist on a certain kind of food. They're going to want a broader cuisine. So what's going in the space oven next? According to Jordana and Ian, it's up to you. We're very open. We do get a lot of inquiries about people who want to send things to space. We got a lot of inquiries at the start of the pandemic of people who wanted to do sourdough. We've made the oven available to anyone, researchers, educators, companies, to use the oven. They just have to contact us and uh, figure out, uh, let us know what they want to do. And last but not least... If Tom Cruise wants to use our oven for their plot when they make their movie up there... Uh, On the space station. Whatever the movie's about... We love that. We, 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 we'll, we'll love that. There's no doubt that space cooking has come a long way from squeezy tubes of goo. From sourdough to Tom Cruise, the possibilities are truly endless. For more outer space content, check out episode 45 of Meet and 3, Houston, We Have Dippin' Dots. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. 
It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome back to Meet in 3. In our next story, Hannah Forden looks at what city sidewalks and parks have to offer our food system. We'll gain insight into how reclaiming urban spaces can offer us all new ways of eating and connecting. So my name is Candace Thompson. It's hard for me to know to describe what it is I do. Candace Thompson wears many hats, but she is the park manager of Stuyvesant Cove, a 2.9-acre wild food forest in Lower Manhattan. She is also the creator of the Collaborative Urban Resilience Banquet, the CURB for short. Her work there is focused on introducing eaters to the edible world that surrounds them through free community banquets. Eight or nine years ago, Candace purchased a guidebook highlighting edible wild plants that grow in urban areas. From then on, her daily dog walks around Bushwick began to shape her relationship with the food system. But I eat it. Why couldn't I eat it? What could I do to maybe make it edible? How did it get here? Urban ecosystems are bursting with edible plants that thrive in ignored liminal spots that many walk right past. Public spaces all over the city are full of untapped potential, both ecologically and as community gathering spaces. I think this comes down to something that I'm really interested in in researching right now is just how our words fail us for how we define public space. You know, a farm, a farm is a, a space that, that generates food for money, right? A garden is a place of, of passive use, right? Where you stop and admire the flowers. A park is where you go to play baseball. Like a commons is kind of the only word we have for a space that's just kind of like general mutually shared space. But even that is loaded with, you know, a complicated history. And like, what would it look like to have a space that is all of those things, you know, that serves purposes both for the humans and the non-humans? With her newest project at Sty Cove, Candace aims to do exactly that. As park manager, Candace is introducing the neighborhood's humans to the natural world that exists in their city. That means redefining the more traditional version of what a public park is and how we relate to it. Where every plant has its own place and everything's pruned just so, which is also, you know, not perhaps the most ecologically um, sound choice to make, right? Like we've learned that we need to leave a lot of the plants that um, die off in the fall. We need to leave them there because they are important to the birds and the bugs and they help sequester carbon, right? And so kind of having to find people and meet them where they are and figure out how you can um, engage them around conversations about their food web in that moment. Managing a native food forest in a public space poses many challenges. And maybe unsurprisingly, the human ecosystem is the main source of these issues. I will say another challenge that I'm struggling with is that the human ecosystem of my space is one of the hardest ones. And public parks become a catch-all for some of our society's uh, biggest failings. Um, 
I have a sizable houseless population who uh, live under the FDR right next to my park or in the park. Um, we are constantly dealing with trash and dirty needles and human waste um, because we don't have public bathrooms and we don't have harm reduction programs and we don't have housing for these folks. And trying to figure out how I can make this space inclusive and accessible and legible to people. Like, how do I have someone understand Look, don't take a shit next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Reframing culture's relationship with wild food sources is just as essential to community health as reframing its relationship with those in need. But society has put in place structures that make this work difficult. Like when the pandemic started, I got really excited because I was like, it's a weird thing to get excited about. I was like, wow, people are going to be at home. People are going to be bored. People are going to have to go outside. People are going to be thinking about food in a different way, as we saw. And I was like, great, this is the gateway moment, right? Where like maybe we can get people away from Whole Foods and we can get people away from Chick-fil-A and we can get them to think about food in a different way. But the fact is capitalism makes it really hard. These systems that we're functioning within just have to go. They got to go. You can watch Candace's explorations in urban foraging on a series of videos on The Curb's Instagram. We'll link to it in today's show notes. If you live in New York, you can also pay a visit to Stuyvesant Cove Park on the east side of Manhattan to see more of Candace's restorative work in action. Thanks to Hannah Forden and Caroline Fox for producing that piece. In our final segment, Matan Dubnikov takes a look into how one grower is making use of indoor space during the COVID-19 pandemic. Most people stuck in cities during lockdown can only imagine ditching their apartments to breathe fresh air. But AeroFarms is making the most of its time indoors. Hello, I'm Mark Oshima. I'm one of the co-founders and chief marketing officer for AeroFarms. We're one of the world leaders for indoor vertical farming. We're all about enabling local production and bringing the farms to the communities where people are. Mark and the AeroFarms team run a state-of-the-art vertical agriculture facility in Newark, New Jersey. Their technology replaces environmental factors like soil and sunlight with high-tech, data-driven inputs, such as a nutrient-rich mist and growth-inducing LEDs that sustainably produce clean greens. The computer-run operation has raised some eyebrows about where the farmers fit in at the farm, But as Mark explains, people are a crucial element from planting to packaging. At AeroFarms, we're this amazing collection of over 170 people, and we're all farmers at heart, uh, but we all play different roles. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. AeroFarms employs dietitians, designers, and researchers, among others, from scores of diverse backgrounds. With extreme caution about health and food safety during the pandemic, AeroFarms has kept its sprawling indoor facility in production, adopting its already stringent policies on entering the farm to further ensure a COVID-free workspace. Think about it almost as if you were entering an operating room. So even before entering, you have to wash up. Uh, you wear what's called uh, protective gear and you sanitize uh, even your shoes upon entry so that we're trying to minimize uh, any kind of risk or exposure. Uh, We have very elaborate filtration on our HVAC systems, and uh, it's at a level of what's called a MERV-13, which has been in the news recently because it's effective against the COVID-19. Everything has been about uh, making sure that we can be 
very, very responsible uh, in our practices and working closely with our team members. Uh, the social distancing already, you know, we have a process where, you know, we do have the benefit of using sensors and automation uh, to be able to monitor the growing. Um, and again, our, our labor is about, again, where we judiciously place people. And, you know, we're having to rethink things like, you know, where our break rooms had been and uh, shifts around when we take breaks so that we could have more staggered. And so there's things that we've had to learn and adjust, you know, within that. But we were already in a pretty good spot, you know, from that standpoint. But while coronavirus has forced many food businesses into survival mode, AeroFarms has prioritized in-team communication and culture despite distance, indoor working, and online interactions. It starts with communication. Uh, we have regular team huddles, regular company huddles. We actually have what we call water cooler chats where we, in the absence of actually being physically together, we actually, and I had two today, just in terms of reaching out to different colleagues and doing a catch-up and understanding. So that's been really important to, to have you know, a healthy pulse on you know, who, where we are, what we're doing. Mark and his team have also realized the potential in sharing AeroFarm's unique technology with communities near and far. So common indoor spaces serve a new purpose and neighborhoods in need are supported with fresh food grown indoors for free. And here, what we're doing in Jersey City is we actually are building 10 small farms that are going to be distributed throughout the community. They're going to be not only in schools, but in municipal buildings, city hall. They're going to be in senior assisted uh, living centers. And the community will be able to have access to this food all year round. It's going to be grown and it'll be available for free. And so this is a way that we talk about, again, how do we address uh, food security and food sovereignty and the idea that even within local communities, access to food, how do we uh, really improve on that? The pandemic has brought us to rethink our relationship with different spaces. Yet while we plan our next trip to the great outdoors, AeroFarms is innovating food and strengthening ties to its communities, all under one roof. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Ryder Bell, Armin Spengen, Alicia Chan, Matan Dubnikov, and Caroline Fox. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>